Look, I mean that that's the difference between the Cardinals and a lot of other teams, right? They don't they don't want a down cycle. They don't want they they want to play every they're playing every year uh, to at least give themselves a chance. And I know the criticism, and I think it's fair sometimes, Derek. I've been critical of their passivity in season. I think they are aggressive in off seasons. I think they go make the big move. I mean, we can we're talking about these guys, right? We're talking about Goldie and Arenado. Those are not passive moves, but in season. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design in St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, and this week, for a 30-minute long deep dive into the infield fly rule, I have brought in my friend, longtime KMOX voice, and well, I guess I should say St. Louis radio voice, right? I guess. And now on KMOX, Kevin Wheeler. I can't think of anybody I'd rather have this long discussion about the infield fly rule. We're just going to get into the intricacies of it. You ready? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. We had, you know, this weekend we had uh, in my coaching duties with my young 14-year-olds, we had like four infield flies in two games. So Really? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it never, it doesn't happen that often, but I think it happens more at our youth levels because, well, the hitters aren't good, so they hit a lot of pop-ups. <laughs> I see, yeah. Yeah, you don't really get it all that much. Was it called correctly? Yes, every time. Every single time it was called correctly with a two-man umpiring crew. Nice. And did the players know the tag was in play? I think. <laughs> they they sure seemed to. Like Nobody took off and ran. Nobody threw for a force <laughs> out that didn't exist. So, yeah, I guess they did. What a what a turn of events. No pun. Well, no pun intended. What a turn of events <laughs> in that game. Um, in, in reality, Giovanni Gallego saved the game, but he also saved the umpires because yes. yeah. goodness, if that had gone upside down for the Cardinals and, you know, I mean, they've, they've won plenty, so, you know, it's okay. They're going to lose another, but, um, well, maybe they won't, but the, uh, <laughs> they, you know, if, if that game had been taken away from them with Hap hitting a home run at that moment, it yep. would have been major league baseball would have had to explain. And it would have been, yeah, it would have been similar to the to the Armando Galarraga no hitter, um, or, or perfect game that was lost to the, the Jim Joyce call. Yeah. It would have been similar. I, I don't know that it would have been as historic. Although when you got a winning streak this long, I mean, there's only been twelve of these in the last one hundred years, so I'd say that's pretty significant historically. Yeah, the Cardinals are on a 16-game winning streak as we record this and as this podcast will launch. They're headed back home for the final homestand of the regular season. They host the Brewers and then the Cubs. The 16-game winning streak is already a club record. It, it broke the uh, the previous high of 14 for the Cardinals since they joined the National League. And I, I can briefly explain that. So they have 130 seasons in the National League. The team considers itself established in 1892. Mm -hmm. They actually put it on T-shirts, and that's what they have approval from Major League Baseball. So that's where the team considers their establishment. You could argue that they've had longer winning streaks when they were back in the American Association, but they also have a championship yeah. when they were in the American Association. And that flag doesn't fly over Bush Stadium. Um, you could argue that, you know, they didn't start in 1892 because that team was kind of relocated to Cleveland or at right. least swapped with Cleveland. And the Cardinals that you know today began in 1899. They were named the Cardinals for the color, not the bird. Mm -hmm. um, that came later, um, almost two decades later. So, you know, but again, still longest winning streak since then. So. It is also the longest winning streak by any team since the Giants of 51. It's the longest winning streak in the final month of the season since the Cubs of 35. And with 11 games that they won consecutively on the road to conclude their road schedule, they match the feat of the 1887 Philadelphia Quakers, <laughs> according to the Elias Sports Bureau. So, all all sorts of funky fun with history, right? But we can put it in only in let's let's just talk about the present, okay? Mm -hmm. Yep. For you, give me some, I guess, highlights of this streak that you think made it possible. Well, I think I think the reason, Derek, the, I mean, the biggest thing that that has gone on is you've gotten three hitters, four hitters, all going at once. I mean, you look at the run totals here in this in this streak. They had a couple of games that they had to win two to nothing or three to two, but mm -hmm. every night you look up. I mean, look at like 
six, seven, seven, eleven, eight, eight, five, ten, eight, eight, twelve, eight. I mean, most of these games, they're hitting and they're hitting a lot. And that's Tyler O'Neill, that's Paul Goldschmidt, uh, it's Harrison Bader, and it's obviously the on the power side, especially, it's Nolan Arenado too. I mean, they, the the real key here is that that or at least to me, it's there are other things too, right? I mean, most of the time the bullpen's been pretty good in one form or another. Starting yeah. pitching has been reliable. The defense obviously has been fantastic all year. But I think the difference is, and the sustained success has to do with that lineup finally producing consistent results. And sometimes it's a guy that, you know, Lars Newtbar has a big game. You know, sometimes it's Yachty and sometimes it's Tommy Edmond. But mostly it's been those three or four guys that have been consistent through this streak. And Harrison Bader is the National League Player of the Week yeah. after his, hitting three home runs in three days at Wrigley and mm-hmm. um, batting, what, 517 for that. Do you think it's oversimplification to say the team took off when they moved Tyler O'Neill to the number three spot? I don't think it's uh, oversimplification at all. I mean, I think it's exactly what happened. I don't know that it's the direct cause, but I do think there's some sense to that having an impact, Derek. I mean, you know, Tyler O'Neill has obviously made a lot of progress as a hitter this year. He's yeah. clearly refined his approach. He doesn't, I mean, yes, he strikes out a lot, but he doesn't get himself out a lot. When he swings, he makes contact. And when he makes contact, he makes hard contact. So, mm-hmm. you know, the strikeouts in his case are pretty close to irrelevant when you're hitting the ball as hard as he is, as often as he does. Um, but <clears throat> when you when you look at where he sits between a guy like Paul Goldschmidt, who gets on base a lot and is a dangerous hitter, and a guy like Nolan Arenado, who's got a really strong case for the Hall of Fame down the road, I, I still believe that where you hit has something to do with how you're pitched. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that guy in between those two particular players is in the best of both worlds. I remember, uh, Derek, I'm sure you had these conversations with, with uh, Chris Duncan as well, but I remember how Dunk talked about the difference between what it was like pitch, hitting in front of Albert Pujols versus hitting behind Albert Pujols right. and the difference in the approach. Well, he gets the best of both worlds here. Oh, that's a great point. So Tyler O'Neill, yeah, kind of gets the best of both of those. Yeah, that's a great example. I thought, you know, I, I tried to explore this in today's paper. And one of the things that caught my ear as I was, you know, thinking about this story, well, two was one, like just the timing of it, right? right, like, right Tyler O'Neill right. goes into the, the three spot there against the Dodgers. Um, you know, it's a night when Paul Goldschmidt has the day off. And so they're looking for, all right, well, how are we going to reorder the hit mm-hmm. the lineup? Dylan Carlson moves up to two where Paul usually hits. And then you have Tyler O'Neill available in the number three spot who had kind of appeared there every so often. And it's clear now that like Schultz was tinkering with it a little bit. Well, Tyler O'Neill goes out, has three hits. Cardinals lose to the Dodgers. He's sitting in the zoom room and he says, Someone's got a lot of fire under our butt. That was yeah. his quote. Yeah. You know, and they've lost once since then. Once. Yep. They, they lost to the Reds since then. It's it's a remarkable run, but it got me thinking like, okay, that's the timing of it. And then the other thing that kind of stuck out to me was Arnato talking about how Tyler O'Neill needed more at bats. Mm-hmm. And by moving them up in the order, you're going to give them over the course of a week, over the course of a month, more at bats. Right. But you're also going to give him more at bats with a runner on base because of what Paul Goldschmidt is doing. Mm-hmm. And if he's getting more at bats with a runner on base, then he can either ignite or extend a rally. And if he's hitting without a runner on base, he can hit the ball hard and maybe start a rally because he's at first and can score from first on Arenado's double. Eight times in this 16-game winning streak, Kevin, they've scored in the first inning. Would you like to hazard a guess how many times O'Neal has been a part of that first inning rally? My guess would be eight. Eight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's remarkable. Yeah. And you know, another thing about him is, and and I know it's, 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 again, it's sometimes people aren't going to look too deep into it. I don't think I, I didn't look at the numbers before I'm going to say this, but he's also the kind of guy that you don't have to worry about double plays too often. Right. You know, I mean, he hits a lot of balls in the air. He's not big on hitting ground balls. But when he does, unless it's smoked right at somebody, he's fast enough to make it a difficult play, if not beat it out. So in in a lot of ways, it's a good fit. And, you know, the the old school way of doing lineups was always best hitter third, no matter what. Right. And now I think we all we understand a little bit doesn't have to be that way. In fact, if you look at how Tampa Bay does their lineup. It's always about how the pieces function together against the opponent that day, as mm-hmm. opposed to one particular guy being our best guy. 
And I think I don't I don't like that way as much. Be to be honest with you, I like the kind of having some kind of regularity because I do think players like routine. I do think players like predictability as a general rule. Yeah. But I, I don't think we have to stick to that old school way. You know, we used to talk about dunk. Uh, get back to dunk, or, or even Jim Edmonds uh, for a while. You know, the the power in the two hole, something that Tony Larusa liked. Damage Obviously, in the two spot. Yeah, yeah damage in the two spot. And that's something that is way more commonly believed now, right? I mean, Mike Trout bats second all the time when he's healthy. You know, Harper has hit second a lot. Like, that's a normal thing. But I also think that, again, how the players in particular complement one another and the challenges they present to the opposing team, that that kind of helps too. But, I, you know, all of it is is helped, Derek, by the fact that they're all going well at the same time. And some of it is, I think, I don't, even, I don't think momentum is the right term, but I, I think some of it is how they complement each other and they feed off of each other. And some of it is the, the randomness of a season. Like everybody, right. you know, you're going to have guys that are hot and cold. They, just, they had a hard time all year getting a lot of players going at the same time. And in September, that's been happening. Yeah. The, Paul Goldschmidt and Tyler O'Neill lead the league. They're no, number one and number two in the majors and runs scored since September 7th, which is that night that O'Neill took over number three and hasn't been out of it since. Mm-hmm. In that time, in you know, since August 27th in the third spot, O'Neill has hit 308 with a 375 on base percentage and a 1057 OPS. That's a lot. In the la- yeah. Wait, well, it gets back. In the 19 games since uh since he returned from that day off that allowed O'Neill to move into the number three spot. All Paul Goldschmidt is doing is hitting 352, 440 <laughs> on base percentage, a 746 slugging percentage Ooh. for a 1187 OPS. You know, Nolan Arenado's hitting 239 in that same stretch, but he's slugging and he's also producing RBIs, which right. is something that he said, look, while I've struggled, I mean, he's talked pretty openly about this where he yeah. said, like, my average is down, it's frustrating. But the one thing I can do is drive in runs and He's the first 100 RBI guy since 2012, and the Cardinals are going to probably end up with two of them. Yeah. Um, you know, an embarrassment of re- it, it. Did it come upon you suddenly how, you know, the Cardinals went from, all right, this offense, man, it's just I kept I, I use the description because I, I hope it fits and I couldn't think of a better one. But they, it just seemed for so long, you know, less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, like yeah. You look at the names and you're like, why is this not working? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're at, you know, Milwaukee and at Wrigley. It's like they have 330 home run hitters for the first time since 04 and only the second time in history. They're, they're, it's the first time they've had three guys hit seven home runs in September and Harrison Bader has six. They could have four. Yeah. You know, I mean, did it, did this happen suddenly? It did actually because, uh, it went, you know, it takes more than those three guys really to, to get things going along. And, you know, in, in, for example, just in August, Harrison Bader was awful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that you had a point there for a good while where once you got past Nolan Arenado, there wasn't much in your way. You know, I mean, you know, there was a long stretch where Yachty wasn't hitting, where Bader wasn't hitting, where DeYoung was really struggling. So you start to string all of those guys together and then right into the pitcher spot. And you're like, there's a lot of, a, there's a big break there <laughs> for opposing pitchers, but with Bader being as hot as he's been in September, you mentioned you know how hot he's been. He's a thousand OPS this month. Um, with Edmundo Sosa creating more consistent offense and in particular more on base than Paul DeYoung was. I mean, you know, so- Sosa has a three forty eight OBP this year, uh, and it's it's even better than that when he starts. Like his yeah. numbers as a starter are pretty good. Uh, tip of the cap, by the way, to our mutual friend, Bernie Miklas. He was the first one that woke me up to that because I was looking at his numbers earlier and I'm like, oh, they look like Paul DeYoung's. And then, he, then I saw that. I'm like, oh, well, when he starts, he's a lot better than that. Uh, but I think his stability, the fact that Molina's been hitting better, you know, I mean, he's he's hit pretty well in the month of September. So you throw all of that together, uh, you know, it's yes, it's those big guys. And and the, you're right that the whole season long, I thought a lot of the same thing. Like, how how are you not more consistent? Uh, with those particular guys, especially with O'Neill going the way that he's been going pretty much all year. And the problem was you had a split lineup where the top half was great. And then after that, it was like, well, you know, got to cross our fingers and hope. But those guys in the month of September have all been at least decent. They're not all amazing. You know, like D- Dylan Carlson's not been amazing in September, but he's been all right. You know, yeah. I mean, he's, he's he's about league average, maybe a little bit better. Yachty are a little bit better than league average. Sosa has not been amazing but again right around league average so 
you're getting at least solid league average stuff in six, seven, and eight spot. And then you're getting the elite stuff in the two, three, four. And imagine what this would look like, Derek, if you had an on-base guy at the top. I mean, I know Edmund is a really fun guy. He's a good player. I'm a fan of him as a player. His speed is unbelievable. Uh, but he's not an on-base guy. Imagine if that was a 340 on-base guy in front of those guys as opposed to a uh, – I don't know what his, his OBP is in September, but for the year it's like 310 or something. So at some point in time during this homestand, does does Jeff Albert have a press conference of three <laughs> words? Or I guess it would be four words, I told you so. Oh, man. You know, I'm going to tell you. There, does he get a victory lap? What, I, it'll be very interesting. Like, I, well, how does this work? I, you know, you know, I, you probably have seen it. I fight this all the time on Twitter, not because it's Jeff Albert, but because I hate the idea that we that people are like it's the hitting coach. It's not. It's not the hitting coach. They help and they can harm, but we don't know it. It's more about the relationships, and we don't know anything about that, and we can't measure it with statistics, and we can't like, like th- this is something that drives me absolutely just up a wall when it comes to the oversimplification and teams feed into this because they'll fire a hitting coach. Like that's going to change things. Uh, You know, like instead of needing to upgrade the roster, well, it'll change the hitting coach. Um, You know, if you change the hitting coach for, for philosophical reasons, that's one thing. If you're going to make that change because the players have tuned out the coach, uh, that's another thing. But really, you know, as you know, Derek, we're we're not going to really know too much of that, uh, especially not the general public. And I think that, you know, there's no, this may be tying into a bigger theme we can expand on if you'd like, but there's no patience to let something play out. I mean, you know, when you look at how long Albert's been here and what he was tasked with doing, um, it's not something you can just come in and snap your fingers and all of a sudden, hey, miracle, everybody's, you know, great again. I mean, Tyler O'Neill needed to figure it out. It needed time. He needed time to figure it out. You don't just snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're awesome. But I think you make a good point that, you know, we, 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 hear, we spend a lot of time worrying about the guys that are struggling. And you're going to blame the hitting coach for Paul DeYoung, you know, hitting under 200, right, and striking out a ton. You're going to blame him for Matt Carpenter, for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know why we blame a hitting coach for a formerly successful hitter who's gotten older and has, physical pro- has had physical problems declining. I mean, I understand why we can't just say, yeah, he's 35 and he's had core and back issues for three or four years. Like, that's why Matt Carpenter has declined. It's not because of a hitting coach. Um, and by the way, it was that change in approach that actually made him an all-star as opposed to, you know, the guy that was a nice player and, and needed to, you know, wasn't really that, that kind of I impact mean, guy. Well, to be fair, I mean, the change in approach made him an MVP candidate. Yeah, he was an point. all-star before yeah, yeah, that. I mean, yeah. he was he was the most productive leadoff hitter as far as on base and doubles right, go right. for years. But I understand your point. I mean, I think the question that people have, and it's a fair one, is why didn't the hitting coach work with him on altering his approach? And, you know, that, that's, it's a fair question. There is also an answer to it, mm-hmm. that if hitting, if hitters could just adjust their approach, a lot more people would be hitters. That's a, I mean, that, you, you nailed it. If it was that easy, there'd be a lot more 300 hitters in Major League Baseball. In fact, we just be a lot more hitters in general because I could go to you, Kevin, and say, here's an approach that will work for you and you'll hit. Or they could come to me, you know, you know, regular Joe baseball rider and say, hey, I'm a hitting coach. I have an approach that will work for you in the majors. At some point in time, you actually need talent. And there's a limit to that talent because not all hitters are the same. You know, I mean, like no one is going to. Um, Tommy Edmond and say, hey, you need to do what Mike Trout does. Right. Because they have a different skill set. Although what Mike Trout does will work for anybody. That's why he's so good. (laughs) His approach approach is literally, I'm going to try to hit the ball through the center field wall. That's his approach. Mm -hmm. I've heard him say it. I mean, like, that's a good, that works for anybody. But he has the ability to hit the ball through the center field. Oh, yes. Yes. But the 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 approach keeps you from getting into bad habits and, becoming sure. overly pull conscious and that's a good thing for any hitter really it, it is but not not all hitters are productive if they're not pull conscious well that's true they won't they, right and if and it, it could be they won't hit for gonna, power and power right, pays right. that's and exactly so, right i mean i know i look to me like this era if you're looking at it you could discuss like two hitters as a big part of this is joey Votto mm-hmm. and matt carpenter yeah and look at what those two guys have had to do 
in their careers. While while many 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 other left-handed hitters come and go. I mean, we it would be a fascinating. I probably ought to do this to sit down and list the left-handed hitters who have come and gone as Joey Votto has reinvented himself yeah. over and over again to try to figure out how to do that. And we're talking about one of the most gifted hitters and thinkers yeah. when it comes to hitting of his generation. Mm-hmm. And it's taken every ounce of him and sometimes uncovering new talents that he had to create to stay at even close to the level that he has. I think that's remarkable. Yeah. And we we don't focus on all the guys who have been removed from the game, eliminated from the game, their careers cut short from the game because what they do and what they have the talent for is completely eliminated in today's game. Yeah, no, it's a great point. It's absolutely a great point. And I think that, you know, kind of tying in with that, unfortunately, when we went, and I'm, when I say we, I mean all baseball fans. I don't just mean you and me, and I don't mean media, and I don't mean just the fans that don't cover the sport. I think all of us need to be better at the balance of things, too. Like, we focus on the failures, but why isn't it a good thing when a rookie like Dylan Carlson, who's 22, is a little bit better than league average? I mean, I'd say that's a pretty good year. Say yeah. Tyler O'Neill has made a massive leap. And then a lot of people are what they are, like the veterans, Goldie, Arenado, Yachty, they're, they're, they, are, they are what they are. I mean, they, they are what they have been, really, is probably the better way to put it. Um, so, again, what this all this argument comes down to is Harrison Bader. And, you know, the argument about him is pretty much depends on what week you're asking this, this question. Because right now he's going great. And you look at his numbers and you're like, dang, he's, he's almost at 800 for the OPS. He's hitting 270. Like, those are great numbers for a guy that plays elite center field. Yeah. Uh, in, in August, he was unbelievably bad. I mean, he was like a 500 OPS in August. And that's, he was remarkable. He yes. was a rock star in July. Yeah, so then we get to, all right, when are we having this conversation? Which brings me to something I've been talking about for a couple of days is, you know, this this difficulty that we all have in, in letting a process finish before we evaluate it. Mm. Like, you know, and by the way, Bader was a 420 OPS in August, but, but he was like a thousand in July and now he's a thousand in September. So, you know, in the end, in the regular season, you know, what matters is what are you for six months? You know, what are you in its, in its whole, um, and in the postseason, it's going to be, what are, what is anybody when it comes to a streak where, you know, how hot are you at a given time? But I think that, you know, letting a job finish for a team, for a particular player is important. I mean, you know, because a lot of the people that have screamed about Bader and and you probably get it a lot on Twitter. I know, especially in the in the chats that you do, uh, and I know I get it a lot. Is like this guy's terrible. You know, he's not shown any improvement. And then you look up now and you're like, but <laughs> but he, he's like ten percent above league average as a hitter, and he's one of the three or four best center fielders in the game. So yeah. isn't that a good player? Yeah, I mean, he yes. And it and it's all about the body of work, not you know, not selective um, selection of statistics. Is that right? Not not arbitrary endpoints. That's the word. Months are yeah. arbitrary endpoints. I mean, I, if you could say, well, he hit this in August, and I could say, well, he hit this from June fourteenth to July fourteenth. It's the same thing. It's arbitrary endpoints. I mean, and right, it's a right. body of work, and there there is more to it. I mean, I think you make a great point about the patience, but we also cannot ignore that there was a moment of impatience this season. The Cardinals go to Atlanta and they play that series in Atlanta and then follow up with a series in Detroit. And fans will remember that that was the offense that really struggled uh, between the doubleheader there in Atlanta. You know, the, in the first game, the Cardinals won that game mm-hmm. and Goldschmidt and Arenado both hit home runs. And between those games, I talked to Nolan in the dugout. It was one of the like first times we were permitted on the field to talk to the players and he said, you know, we just, you know, he was talking about he and Goldschmidt just haven't gotten together at the same right. time. Right. And they wondered what that would be like. Like he thought in his mind, man, what, I mean, he's been part of some really heavyweight duos, right? I mean, some like, you know, great tandems in Colorado, or really great trios when it comes to power in Colorado. So he knows like how you feed off of each other and what's possible for a team. Yeah. If all the hitters are going. And he said that, that, you know, they're just waiting for that to arrive wasn't a few days later when they're having meetings there at Bush about, hey, we got to 
we got to remember who we are and really fix things with this offensive approach. They felt like they were winning gold gloves for third baseman. They were pulling ground balls, hitting mm-hmm. them hard. They're, they're, you know, they were just, they became very pull happy, pull conscious. Some of that had to do with a topic that we'll get into here shortly, and that's Bush Stadium. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they felt like they had just become, and the phrase that uh, Schilt talked about was one dimensional. They just mm-hmm. became one dimensional as an offense. And in a way, they'd lost their way as far as being an on base team which has really been at the core of this era of success going back to McGuire, where they're just among the best teams at getting on base and then letting, you know, their success with runners in scoring position and how they approach things there work for them. All of that had faded, all of it. I mean, and they, they weren't particularly high on the strikeout rates. Um, I know people go, well, man, they strike out a lot, but they're not. They're low. No. Third. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're actually game. good compared to most teams. Yeah. They just strike out a lot compared to the 80s team. Right. Um, right. Because everybody does. <laughs> yes. But, you know, that we have to remember that, like, you know, to, to continue on your theme there, that there was that moment of impatience and that off day that said, we have to change. And there was a very public acknowledgement of it, which, you know, teams do this. And usually when we write about it, it's usually sources say, or right, the player right. confirms right. this was very out in the open. Um, I remember asking the question, uh, you know, you had Tommy Edmond talk about how they had to discuss, you know, their approach to pitchers and what they were doing there. Um, he said that on the post game and it was broadcast. Yep. So there was that moment of inflection. And to your point about patience, how does that, factor in here to how we should view the hitting coach and and you know it is he now i mean has has all all of it bygones right like all that frustration all the calls for quote-unquote accountability which right, is right. euphemism for firing him right right um is all of that bygones now and because they've now awoken because now they seem to be more dimensional as an offense or do we ask about how they got themselves in that for, in that spot in the first place? Well, the problem here is that every every question involved is a moving target, you know, oh, because, because every hitter is different. So right. Paul, Paul Goldschmidt probably doesn't change a whole lot, no matter who the hitting coach is, whether he was in Arizona or in St. I mean, he, he knows what works for him. He's been doing it for a long time. I would say it's probably the same for Nolan Arenado. I can't imagine that those guys come in and say, well, you know, I've been doing this for a certain way for a long time. But I'm going to change because this hitting coach has a different idea. I don't think hitters go that way. I think hitters do what, they, what they're good at. Now, the problem is that people do slump for various reasons, right? I mean, for some reason, Paul Goldschmidt is not as good early in the year as he is later in the year. Whatever that reason is, that's been a trend. That's not a new thing. So do we point to his turnaround being related to that change? Or is that just Goldschmidt? Is that just kind of his pattern? Like, whether it's... the temperatures or it's you know the number of at bats that he starts to see the ball better I mean there are, there are a lot of explanations for things like that and that's to me the problem with pinning anything on a particular player slash coach I mean we didn't have nearly the conversations about Mike Maddox being responsible for guys that couldn't throw strikes why weren't we having that same conversation why is it always the hitting coach I'm not talking about Uh-oh. you and I I'm just yeah. saying that you know the, the we we do this all the time with hitting coaches. You know why? Because hitting's hard. It's impossible to pin down. You fail more than you succeed, and it is very much about streaks. Hitting is about streaks. Whether it's your total numbers on the year, whether it's you know winning games or whatever, it's about streaks. And you know the the longer you can stay in a good one, the better. But you know you're going to get into a bad one at some point. And I do think that, I mean, obviously, if the players are acknowledging that the change was necessary, and it wasn't just one guy, as you pointed out, clearly that's important to note. Um, And I would say that, you know, the team knows, the players, the manager, the front office, they know exactly what role the hitting coaches had in the good and the bad, right? I I don't know that I know. I don't know that. You know, that it's as simple as, well, here's all the stuff we were getting from Jeff and we stopped doing that. So now we're better. If that's the case, they know it and we'll see a change at the end of the year. I mean, I don't don't think there's any question about that. Although, you know, when you look at the larger picture and what Albert was tasked with doing 
and that is implementing, a, you know, this kind of, you know, philosophy, game plan, you know, approach, whatever you want to call it, at all levels in the organization, there have been a hell of a lot of breakout years of minor league hitters. Yeah. Um, you know, top prospects like Gorman and Walker being fantastic and being super advanced for their age. Uh, guys like Juan Yepes having career power years, uh, Nick Plummer coming along. I mean, you know, so it's a much more complicated, I guess, situation than just what were you before and what are you now? You know, and because because how much of a part was he in the change? I mean, do I if he was a part of it? Well, then doesn't anybody, player, coach, manager, don't they get credit? I mean, how many times have we questioned um, Mike Schilt's moves when it comes to the batting order? or which relievers are going in which spots and whether or not there should be an, a change or an adjustment in how that goes. I mean, I think that, that, that all of that's part of, of how you evaluate any coach or manager. But again, as I go back to the hitting coach, it always seems like it's the blame for the hitting coach. And I don't know how much a part he was of that change. And I guess we'll find out, Derek, because if they move on, we'll know that it was <laughs> it was probably a push from – players and uh, and other people in the organization or maybe Mike Schilt to to change things from what they were doing before. I can tell you that, you know, the you make a good point about the minor leaguers because that is under his watch. Mm -hmm. Um I know the focus is on the major league team, but he also has, you know, either colleagues or trusted people that he's brought with him. Um and, you know, has worked hard to kind of install this throughout the organization and that was really the like that was the goal they felt that they'd fallen behind with a overall kind of system-wide approach to hitting so that you know hitters are being taught the same thing just very various um you know it's a little bit like uh like college right yeah yeah. like they got introductory stuff at the lower levels and then you know as you work up it gets more and more um but it's all along the same theme like you're, you're majoring in hitting right it's whether you get your bachelor's you know, and get and move on to double A, your master's and move on to triple A and your doctorate, move on to the majors, right? Okay. So that's the that's the that's the analogy. But he was in charge of putting all that in place. And internally they've been really encouraged by how the the, the results, yeah. uh, how those have come by synthesizing the tech and the approach. So right. you got to keep that in mind. This winning streak coincides with the Dodger series, right? I mean, um, you know, like I said, they've won 18 of 19. Um, they lost the first two games of the Dodger series. That was coming back from a road trip where they had gone Cincinnati, yep. uh, well, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Milwaukee. Um, they had hit home runs in something like eight consecutive games. Colton Wong had talked to the athletic about how he was having a power renaissance a bit mm -hmm. with the Brewers and was able to have a different approach than he did with the Cardinals. And all that got me thinking about, you know, what the deal is with Bush stadium. And, yeah. and by the know, way, the whole Colton Wong thing was a little premature, wasn't it? What do you mean? Because you look at his numbers now and they look exactly like they did two years ago in a full season with the Cardinals. Like his, they're different proportions but he's basically the same player. Right. Yeah. I mean, he had, I, I, he does have more power, but he's, he's but not, he's, his OPS plus is the same or, or within a couple points. Right. He's getting there a different way. Right. And right. He so, was an on base guy because that's what the Cardinals needed from him. Right. Um, but I mean, again, what, what was, what was the, the implication from a lot of people who read those articles was see how stupid the Cardinals are. Well, what's the difference? <laughs> If he's the same player, in the end, if he's got the same OPS plus, if he's got the same league-adjusted numbers, then is he really better? I mean, yeah, more power is more power, but that doesn't mean you're better if you're giving something else away. Right. I, I just think that it also has to do with where you're playing. Well, that's like, true. Look, if, great point. Yep. If you're playing in a hitter-friendly ballpark, which a lot of hitters think is which one of the best Miller ballparks Park is, to yeah. hit. Yeah. American Family Field. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm getting better at it. No, Old habits die hard. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the they all toasted with Miller Lite at American Family Field <laughs> in the, points, the division, but that's all right. The uh, you know if you're there, you're going to have a different approach. If 81 of your games are there, yeah, and, and then another handful are at Wrigley, and another handful are in Cincinnati. All of a sudden, a majority of your games are at really good hitter park, and you can adjust accordingly. Yep. Um, 
you know, and I wrote a story there in Milwaukee. Um, you know, it's been kind of kicking around the Cardinals that they're going to look at what's happened at Bush Stadium. It's become hostile to hitters and more so than they planned. They always wanted a pitcher friendly park, but not to skew to one of the hardest places to hit, arguably the hardest place to hit for power in baseball. In over particular the past for right handers, yeah. In particular for right handed batters who they have two rather famous. <laughs> Yes. I mean, they have, you know, now now it's interesting because no, since Nolan Arenado debuted in the majors, he has the most pull home runs of anybody. Since that same year, Paul Goldschmidt has the most opposite field home runs of anybody. And I talked with a couple of his teammates and they said they they track, they watch like, well, that's a home run for Paul Goldschmidt that was just caught in the right center gap because that's Bush Stadium. You know, and you can do the overlays now. And I mean, it'd be, it'd be about five, six more home runs for him which, you know, you add that to his numbers, and all yeah. of a sudden you're talking about, like, he's in the MVP conversation. Mm-hmm. You're probably talking about MVP favorite yeah. given this run. But anyway, so that got me thinking, and, and they are, they acknowledge that they're trying to figure out what's happened. Is it the sky rise in center field? Has that changed, you know, the wind patterns? Um, you know, players on both sides, you know, visitors and the guys who play there every day have told me to watch BP and see how how the ball flies there, how on the field the wind will be one direction and the flags will be going another. Um, they think that it's really cut down on the airflow between the gaps, yep. um, but they're trying to figure that out. And do they need to move the walls in and everything? So now with that as context, I wrote, I wrote that story that they're looking at that and they're concerned about it. And there was obviously blowback. And every time somebody hit a home run at Bush Stadium, particularly a Dodger, I would get an email saying, doesn't look like they have a hard time hitting the power, <laughs> which isn't the point. But they have scored a lot of runs here in the last stretch. Yeah. Of those 16 games in a row that they've won, 11 are on the road. So was it? premature to write about Bush being a problem for hitters or was it there's something to it well I mean I guess this kind of gets back to you know the the arbitrary nature of picking out a sample size but I, I would say that if I, I'm looking at this right now on, on baseball savant the, their ballpark factors mm-hmm. and it's a three-year window it's 2019 through 2021 and you're 27th in major league baseball in basically everything, you know, total offensive production. And this is not, people always forget this. People are like, well, that's because the Cardinals have good pitching. No, no, no. This is factoring that in. (laughs) This is adjusting for all of that. Yeah. Let's, let's let's explain that to listeners real quick. Okay. So ballpark factors take into account both teams and the way they use it is they use the numbers at that ballpark and then they normalize them against what those teams do at, other ballparks okay so what it essentially does is it said it takes here are here are the teams in who play in this ballpark yep. combined this is their performance and this compares how um you know this uh then we'll compare it to how these teams do elsewhere right uh, that's the equation and right you know i uh um you know i looked at games you know um for all teams at Bush Stadium. And I right. went through it by hand and added it up. Yeah. And and it's absurd how far away from league average. You know, you're, you're talking about games that feature fewer runs. So yeah. are they as in entertaining? You know, you're talking about games that feature far fewer home runs. Good question. So are they as entertaining? You're, you're featuring less slugging. Um, doubles have vanished from the ballpark. And Rel- used yeah, to relative be, to what it used to be. Yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, so it used to be a haven for doubles, yeah, and that yeah. was fun. Like, that was entertaining. That was the go-go Redbirds, right? That's what fans wanted to see. That was the style that they expected. That's why yeah. Matt Carpenter, you know, took a run at what well, – you, no, he didn't take a run at it. He had 50 doubles. Yep. You know, and now doubles have just vanished. Yep. Um, that That's not entirely the ballpark's fault. That has to do with the modern approach of hitters. Sure. And yeah, how yeah. it meshes with the ballpark. Right. And I think that's the thing. If you look at anything you'd like to, whether it's just straight up park factor or, you know, if you want to compare, like you're talking about home runs, doubles, triples. Um, Bush Stadium is about league average when it comes to singles and when it comes to triples. But it's below average in everything else. 
runs and significantly. I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking bottom five, bottom bottom yeah. three to five in in most of those categories. Now, what I think is interesting, and that's 2019 through 2021. Now, so that's the last three years. If you if you go back and you look at it, 2016 to 2018, it wasn't as bad. Right. It wasn't good. It was they were and so instead of 27th or 28th, they were 21st. Right. You know, the bottom middle 20, third. Right. Yeah. If if you go back to let's say 2015 and you look at that window that started in 2013. So 13, 14, and 15, uh Bush Stadium ranked 20th. So for a long time it was exactly what you were describing, which is fair. It was, you know, it was maybe it was middle third, but maybe the bottom half of the middle third. For some reason, these last few years, it is now bottom three or four in a lot of these categories and bottom three in the total, right? In total, when you talk about that park factor. And meanwhile, so what, what's the changed? this, yeah, well, the, the structures around the yes. ballpark have yeah. changed. Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, the Cardinals this year have had a top 10 offense on the road. Yeah. When it comes to slugging and production and a lot of the indicators of a strong offense, mm -hmm. they're a top 10, in some cases, top five offense on the road. And this winning streak has reinforced that. Yeah. They went to Milwaukee and they thundered. They went to Wrigley and they thundered. Right. You know, and they have, you know, this winning streak that is built around 11 games on the road. Yeah. Um, and it's not about, you know, like, be part of the conversation. Right. And it's not a disadvantage because, as you pointed out, it, it impacts the visiting team, too. So it's not like it's keeping you from winning games, but it, but it does explain offensive numbers. It does give you an idea of why. So we hear this all the time, like why do guys blossom when they get away from here? Well, maybe it's just that they got away from here, you know, like the ballpark. You know, why does Luke Boyd go to, to a, a really great hitters park and have better numbers? Well, he never really had the chance here. That's an unfair thing. I mean, he was just never going to be the guy here. It's going to be Paul Goldschmidt. But you know that that is, a, I think, an important thing to understand when you when we're having this conversation. Uh, is you know, are people actually better when they leave, or are they just in better hitters' ballparks? You know, I mean, again, look at Coors Field as the example. I mean, yeah. Nolan Arenado. Again, I I don't I haven't looked at it here in the last little bit, Derek. But uh, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, Arenado's you know like adjusted numbers, weighted runs created, OP, OB, OB, uh, OPS plus. They were about the same as his career average in Colorado, yeah. but the numbers don't look the same because right. obviously it's adjusted for the ballpark. So it is, it, we're not, you know, people that look at Arenado and say he's not having as good a year. No, he is. He is. It's that's the difference. It's course field versus Bush stadium. We can chart this like change. Like you were talking about the last mm -hmm. three years, just by looking at like average slugging percentage mm -hmm. and what, you know, the overall game looks like at Bush Stadium. I mean, you're mm -hmm. talking about in the last four years, an overall game where teams are slugging within games, and this includes Cardinals and opponents, 418, and how off that is from the league average. Yeah. Um, you know, you have, uh, I mean, the Cardinals actually slug slightly better than their visitors. But, you know, for example, before this hot streak of the Cardinals, before, the, again, the stretch with the, the games on the road, um, that have kind of constituted this winning streak. You know, the Cardinals were at, you know, 377 at home. That was mm. that's 32 points below the league average. That's in fact, lot. each, yeah, in, in fact, each of the last four seasons, they've been 27 points off or more, often 30 or higher, off the league average. And only once in those years have they been, sorry, Three times in those years have they been – no, this is right. Okay, and only twice in those years they've been below league average in slugging, and two of those years they've been plus 20. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a delta from the difference between their games – again, their games at home and their games at on the road. You're talking about a delta of 50 points. Wow. Which is just, uh, you know, around the, the league average. I mean, that that's just a, no, you know, that's a wild swing in yep. style of game. I mean, like, I think it just paints the picture, right? And none of this is meant, at least, for, you know, I think from the two of us, we, we've known each other long enough. I think we could both agree that we're not necessarily trying to dish out or avoid dishing out blame for anything, right? This is not about, you know, well, this makes everything better or this explains or excuses one thing or another. 
It is simply you have to know the facts before you're going to make a decision on how to proceed, right? Yeah. Like you have to understand what's happening and why. So again, this this always this colors that conversation about um, you know the the quote unquote guys who leave and all of a sudden look better. Now problems. Some of the problems are those guys that have left didn't get the same opportunities. You know, Rosarena didn't get to play a lot. Uh, Luke Boyd obviously right. wasn't going to play a lot. But there, you know, the other examples like Marcelo Zuna as an example, you know, when he got to Atlanta and started hitting, it was like, well, where was that? Nice job, Albert. Like, well, you know, some of that had to do with his injury and some of that had to do with being at Bush Stadium. And also it was his history before. I mean, when he was in Miami, he was the erratic guy. You know, one year he'd be amazing. Another year he wasn't so good. And I think we just have to be careful about drawing conclusions from one bit of information. And when you look at, for example, what most people look at, Derek, it's not the ballpark factors at Baseball Savant. It's not the the detailed look at how things have happened. What most people will go look at is runs scored. They will go to ESPN.com, right. click on the standings, and they will see how many runs you've scored compared to how many runs another team has scored or what your, what's your batting average, your team batting average, compared to what you think is a good batting average. And that's where the judgment is made yeah. without having all of that other context that really helps you understand exactly what's going on. You're because right. if you take this same lineup and you put it in Coors Field, the numbers are going to be over the top. Because these yeah. are better players than what the Rockies have. I mean, yeah. they, just, they just are. And we can, and again, Arnado's the perfect example. At Coors Field, he was the 40 homer guy that hit three over 300. And look, he might be the 300 guy again sometime. I know he's upset that he's not. <laughs> he's, he values that that skill. And so so does everybody else. But I do think that at least part of what we're seeing is an adjustment. And look, it took Goldschmidt some time to make some adjustments to, you know, playing at Bush Stadium. And, you know, this is the first time we've seen him for a full long run, you know, like a four-month run be this for the Cardinals. You're right. It- and a confluence of events have really led to this, right? Okay, we spent a lot of time here in this conversation talking about the offense and its revival, whether you look at that as, you know, three guys finally getting hot and that coinciding with moves in the lineup or the moves in the lineup igniting those three guys right, getting right. hot, right? Okay, it's kind of a chicken and egg question. Right. But the truth is that it's both things in concert. And that's mm-hmm. what's really happened here is the confluence of the offense the additions at the trade deadline that the Cardinals acknowledged were meant to survive the season mm-hmm. are now helping them thrive in this season. John Lester pitching well, J.A. Happ pitching well, Michaelis coming back, Flaherty and Hudson now factors in this. So in a way, this mirrors what the Cardinals found as they got you know late into the season in 2006, where health was on their side, where it had been worked against them for the majority of the season. All that said. This winning streak has also been a showcase of what has been the constant for the Cardinals all year long. And that, Kevin, is the best defensive team I've ever seen. I mean, they're really good, man. And it's not and it it's it's borne out with any like any kind of metric you want to look at. You know, I mean, you know, run saved is a pretty good catch-all and if they finish where they are now and it sure looks like it's a damn near lock at this point. They're the first team ever to, to leave that category back-to-back years, right? I mean, and I know it's not been around that long, but still, that's a significant thing. And you're right. I mean, you know, and by the way, not, not only are the guys that you thought of as your first line, you know, your starting lineup, not only are they good defenders, but even the guys behind them are pretty good, right? I mean, when like when Newt Bar plays, he's good. Sosa stepping in, there's no drop-off. Sosa's probably maybe even a little bit better than Paul DeYoung defensively because he moves a little more quickly. Uh, it's got a little more to me, a little bit more range and fluidity to his to his movements. Where DeYoung has always been a pretty good, he's like a good, solid, reliable shortstop, above average for sure. Mm-hmm. I think Sosa might even be a little bit better than that, and I think that's that's how they survived in in really these last two or three years, Derek. And and it's part of why you know no matter what questions we have about lineups and who's playing and how fast or how slow they adjust to the circumstances when it comes to the lineup or pitching or whatever, this is the one thing that has been a significant upgrade since the day that Mike Schilt took over as the manager. They immediately got better defensively, and they immediately got better running the bases. And those two things have not wavered, and those are the bedrocks. This is what keeps them going when the other factors are figuring things out or struggling or whatever, however you want to put it. 
There's a difference between like a good, reliable, fundamentally sound defense, though, and what the Cardinals have played, for particularly sure. yeah. over the last, well, I mean, for all season, but it's really been on display here recently. Mm-hmm. And that's a defense willing to make a play, to steal a play. 100%. Um, you think about some of the double plays that Paul Goldschmidt has tried to pull off um, mm-hmm. and done. You know, the other day in Wrigley, they had a play, a rundown, where seven players on the field touched the ball. <laughs> it was a little league double play. It's so great. It was a little league double play, but how many times do you see that completed? Not very often. <laughs> Not the little league level either. I mean, isn't there isn't there a team out there? Maybe there's there's ten teams out there that gets to that point where the center fielder is supposed to be on second base and he's not, and the throw goes into right field where there's no one there or doesn't Mm -hmm. go at all and the runner's safe at second? Isn't that possible? Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. Look at what – I mean, just as an example, look at what happened when uh, those situations presented themselves to other teams in this stretch. Right. I mean, right. look, look at I mean, look at how, what happened to the to the Cubs. We were who were we joking about a lot too? There, oh, the Mets, the Mets. Oh my lord! <laughs> it seemed Mets. like every time they were put under pressure, they failed. They 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 threw the ball away. They made a mistake. The Mets were the worst best team I've seen. The worst, <laughs> as far as the teams that say we're we should be contenders, that's right. the worst team I saw. Like 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 the Pirates. Okay, you you kind of have you grade on a curve, right? The Cubs now you grade on a curve, right? Right. But going to that series in New York and watching the Mets going, wait, weren't you guys supposed to be good? This is awful. Yes. This is this is a and that that's the difference, right? Is like you have a sub, supremely gifted fielder in Javi Baez, a supremely gifted fielder in Lindor, and mm-hmm. they're gonna try to over talent you with a play right Mm -hmm. and what we've seen from the cardinals is they are supremely reliable defenders um and then they got elite defenders at multiple positions i mean look at it derek you've got arguably the best defensive catcher in baseball in the last 50 years right i mean there there are debates i mean i could talk about rodriguez and a few others but molina is an all-timer he's an elite defensive player tyler o'neill is probably the fastest and best, you know, left fielder in the game defensively. Obviously, Bader, we've already talked about. Oh, and there's nobody better in the game than Arenado at third base. There may be one or two or three guys at Goldschmidt's level at first base. I mean, this is all, this is not by accident, <laughs> right? I mean, and Dylan, you know, Dylan Carlson as a corner outfielder is pretty solid. No, you know, the shortstops have been solid to above average. I think Tommy Edmonds been really good at second base. I'm not mm-hmm. sure he's quite Colton Wong, but he's close. You don't you didn't lose a whole lot in that switch when it came to the defense. And that's saying yeah. something because Wong is spectacular. Tommy Edmond has had a strong year defensively. And yes. you know, I mean there for a while you had three a really excellent second baseman in this division in Frazier, Wong, and mm-hmm. Tommy Edmond. And you know, picking out who was gonna win the gold glove from that trio was probably a lot like you know, just going with the incumbent at certain points. I right, mean, right. Colton is is. I mean, if Colton were on this team, you'd be talking about one of the best defensive teams of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, right up there with what would would be the most recent the the Mets that Maybe. had the superb defensive team with what uh, Alomar, Olerud, and Ventura. I think it yeah. was. Didn't they have yeah. Ordonez on that team too? Yeah, and Ray Ordonez, who yeah. is, was was crazy good. Um, so, I mean, you, that's what you'd be talking about. So, which brings us back to conclude with the infield fly. Did you have, um, of all the things like the Cardinals have done well, like let's, let's, let's say it for the truth. If they had just tagged a guy instead of tagged a base, that game's over. Yeah. I was going to say not, not one party involved in that play got it right. Well, except for Paul Goldschmidt, who was shouting. Sure, sure, sure. I'm going team. Like, yeah. Like, you know, the yeah, Cardinals, yeah. the Cardinals. Didn't realize. I mean, like, here, here's the thing that I'm having a hard time with. I, 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 I think the umpires deserve the most criticism because the rules are literally their job. <laughs> that is their yeah. job to know and enforce the rules. How can Doug Eddings? How can any part of this explanation be that Doug Eddings didn't know it was an infield fly? It's a pop up on the infield with runners on first and second and less than two outs. It's an infield fly. There is no other outcome. It's either a foul ball or an infield fly. So how in the world are you calling that a force? You have to, I mean, like, you don't have to see it 
or hear it or call it yourself to know that's exactly what it is. And it's the only thing it could be if that ball lands fair. So they screwed that up. The, The Cubs screwed it up because they didn't know it either, and their guys just start randomly running. Yeah. And then obviously the Cardinals did because they went immediately for the first force, as you pointed out. There was no force play there. Now, I get it a little bit in, in, in both the case of the Cubs and the Cardinals in that there's always a little panic. Like something weird happens, and everybody's off balance, and you're like, what do I do? And you have that moment, right? Like the Cardinals scrambling to get the ball. I'm like, oh, here's the nearest possible out, and you go there. Like I understand that, but still, they are all big leaguers have been doing this their whole lives. They should have known that there's no force play anymore, just tag people. Yeah, watching it unfold there, I thought there were like two guys who were in clear command of the situation. It was the third place, Ump and Goldschmidt. Yep, good call. Yep. You know, like Nolan Arenado loses his footing, doesn't make the catch, and immediately, I mean, as that ball is coming down, you hear infield fly rule, hand goes up, right? I mean, it wasn't, everyone's like, well, you didn't call it till it hit the ground. Well, no, he called that it was going to be if it was fair. And that's how that rule works. If it's right, foul, right. it's not. It's well, he was ball. pointing to the sky before. And he was down. pointing to the sky before. He's like, look, you know, this goes fair. It's infield fly. Right. Then as soon as it hit, the umpire, the home plate umpire, you know, Bill Miller raised his hand. Right. And you hear, you hear Goldschmidt. And I, I swear, I, I should go back and watch this again with the audio up. But you hear tag, tag, like he's shouting. Yeah. You know, at them to tag the guys. They throw to third and they touch the base. The young touches the base. And you don't see the the third base umpire doesn't do anything. Right. He he nailed it. Right. Like right there at that moment. 100%. You know, and so if the young had stepped off and tagged the guy running to him, I think that was Romaine, right? Yep. Romaine. Um, yeah. Romaine. Um, not the salad, the catcher. Um, sorry about that. The The game would have been over. And the third base ump, who was all over it, would have called it that way. Right. Which I, I found a fascinating kind of part to this. So, and we'll conclude. I, I We could go for I could I could talk for this. I mean, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this. And it shows you, number Amazing. one, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. Because yeah. most of the time, the big league infielder will catch the pop-up. Like That's why you never see that kind of chaos. And also, the runners won't move. Right. A lot of times, in a situation like that, they'll call infield fly rule, and right. you'll see the batter peel off, and the hitters won't move. Right. That, that, was the, that was the oddity of that, was how the – because they were like, well, he, the batter's out. Now we can advance at our own risk, but we don't need to, and we just won't move. Right. You know, and I, I mean, we've seen that. I've. It's rare, but you see that every so often. Usually they just don't move. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to close with this, though. Do you have a favorite defensive play that you've seen? Oh, my God. There's so many. You know, wh- which game was it, Derek, where they had – I want to believe – I want to say it was – it was uh, it was a replay – a relay play from deep left center field, Bader to Sosa to Molina, and I forget which game it was. And it was early in a game, but it cut down a run that – Seemed like it should have been an automatic. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the play? Because I'm, I'm spacing on which game it was. I'm working um, on it. But, you know, I like a lot of the spectacular plays, right? I like uh, the diving plays. I mean, every – I mean, let's be honest, man. Every game, Nolan Arenado makes a charging barehand play that I go, oh, my God. Like, that's not supposed to be that easy. <laughs> it's not it, – that doesn't get completed like that regularly. That's how good he is. Like, he makes that play. You're like, oh, he's going to make that play. Like every time you see that slow roll, like, oh, it's an out. Arnado's going to get there. But that play is extremely difficult and shouldn't be that easy. So, like, that stuff is is hard not to notice. Um, I always appreciate Molina's little things, too, when it comes to, you know, a pickoff here and there. He had a great pickoff earlier this year where it looked like he wasn't going to throw and kind of deke the, the runner mm-hmm. and picked him off. Yep. Um, and, like, he's always that way. But it, it, beyond those things, my nerdy catcher stuff and the spectacular – I really love when you see the great execution on things like cutoffs and relays. It's just so much fun to see three guys on the same play do it right, make the clean throw, make the tag, and get it done. The, the relay you're talking about got bets at home. Right, right, Dodgers. right. Dodger series, right, right. It was the Dodger. It was, it was Wainwright's start there. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't the start of the winning streak, the, the record winning streak, but it's definitely the start of this revival that has them, as we record this, one win away from the postseason. On September 7th, when O'Neill moved into that number three spot, their playoff odds, according to Fangraphs, was 2.8%. 
as we're talking now, about less than three weeks later, it's 100%. That is one of the more, they'll be the, they'll be the first team since the introduction of the wild card to come from that small of a playoff odds to reach the playoffs, which is there anything more Cardinal than that? No, <laughs> no, no, you're right. And and it's funny because again, it gets, it gets back to driving home the same message, which, and I'm not sure Derek, why, and again, I'm including myself in this. When I say we, I don't mean to separate like me from fans or anybody else. But this is part of why, and I know one of my personal philosophies is, let's evaluate the team or any team at the end of the season. When the season's over and the playoffs are done, what did you get done? And then after that, we can have the real reasonable, rational discussions about what needs to change, what was good, all that kind of stuff. And I'm just shocked that we have not better learned this lesson from the 2006 Cardinals, from the 2011 Cardinals, from the Stanley Cup winning St. Louis Blues. How have people in St. Louis not better learned this message to let it finish before you decide what a year is? Because if the if the 06 team had lost to the Padres as everybody thought they would, mm -hmm. that would have been talked about like the beginning of the down period for the Cardinals, right? It would have been, oh, wow, 06, 07, 08, 09. Boy, those were the dark years. You know, it, it, and because they got hot in October, we don't remember an 83-win team that way. In 2011, if the Braves don't collapse, we're not even talking about that team, let alone celebrating a 10-year anniversary. Right. You know, I think, I think we have to let it finish. Then we can have the informed discussion as to what the year is. Because if this team goes and wins the World Series, Nobody's going to be talking about, well, you should fire the manager and the hitting coach is an idiot and the owner doesn't know what he's doing. Like, you're going to remember it. There'll be, there will be a parade and there will be a reunion 10 years from now. So and we will know these things in short order. We will know in a month or less. So why, I, why can't we figure out that, that dynamic? Why can't we figure that out? I would just like to offer one caveat to that. Uh, that if the team's actions say their season is over, then it's fair to judge. Sure. And okay. I will right. offer that up as an as, like the as Cubs selling. Yes. So the Cubs and Cardinals had just about the same record right at the All Star mm -hmm. break, and when that when the Cardinals visited Wrigley, right, they were just right around there, and they were two very different teams looking at this season very differently. Yep. Same record, going in different directions because of their actions. Yep. And the moment that the Cubs said, "Well, we're selling," I think it's fair to say that season is over. Yes. Just there you go. That, that's a good point. Yep. We just haven't seen that with the Cardinals, who's apparently, um, you know, part of their identity is a season's never over till it's zero, which I find fascinating. Well, I mean, that's look, I mean, that, that's the difference between the Cardinals and a lot of other teams, right? They don't yeah. they don't want a down cycle. They don't want they, they want to play. Every, they're playing every year uh, to at least give themselves a chance. And I know the criticism and I think it's fair sometimes, Derek. I've been critical of their passivity in season. I think they are aggressive in off seasons. I think they go make the big move. I mean, we can, we're talking about these guys, right? We're talking about Goldie and Arnado. Those are not passive moves. Those are very aggressive off season moves, but in season, they are very passive and they have been for a long time. I mean, when's the last impact trade at the deadline? Like the one where you were like, wow, that's a move. I mean, it's probably 2011, right? Well, even then though, that was about moving Colby Rasmus. Right, but I'm saying it, it, it was the first one where you're like, wow. Most of the in-season deals since then have been of the Lester Hap variety. I think the last one that you go, wow, that changes the team is Holiday. Okay, yep, that was, and that was because 09. Because that's like a booster rocket for the lineup. Right, there you go. As opposed there. to in 2011 when they made a trade and you're like, well, that changes things. Right. Well, I'll tell you this, that one's probably more significant just in hindsight because they won. Correct. If they, if they hadn't won, that wouldn't be a deal that anybody would think of. Right, that that deal is more similar to this year in the sense that it was go get what you need, rewrite what's not working, and cross your fingers and get through. Yeah, yeah. That is my friend Kevin Wheeler, KMOX. He's part of the pre and post game shows and all kinds of sports shows there at KMOX eleven twenty a.m., which is still available, I believe, in forty eight states. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. pretty much, pretty much everywhere east of the Rockies, without much trouble. Or anywhere there's an internet connection. No, that's true. We're worldwide, man. Yeah, worldwide. That's worldwide. Wheeler. Worldwide. 
Yep. Now, now you have a new nickname. It's not Keebler anymore. It's Worldwide Wheeler. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. The WWW. Yeah. <laughs> You can you can find all of the Cardinals coverage at the Post Dispatch uh, stltoday.com. That's where you can find chats. That's where you can find game coverage. That's where you can find exclusive notebooks and all sorts of things. We also have the immediate coverage right there after a game, which is uh, a nice little challenge with games ending on an infield fly rule. But I wasn't on we, that one, thankfully. We figured that out. Um, you can find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcasts. It's available on iTunes. It's also available at stltoday.com, Stitcher, all over the place. The best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. Get organized with Closets by Design of St. Louis. Update your closets, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-B-Y-D-E-S-I-G-N. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Sponsorships make the podcast possible and and subscribers make those sponsorships possible. So thank you to everybody who has subscribed to the Post-Dispatch and to the best podcast in baseball for making these things possible. We try to live up to your investment every year, and that means rising to the occasion when the team has a September like this. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Look forward to talking to you through this stretch. The magic number is one. The Cardinals will likely be the second wild card game in, or I'm sorry, the second wild card berth into the National League playoffs. So that means Dodgers Giants. They got a good matchup there, Kevin. Not really, but I think it's it's a tough call, right? I mean, I think you're much more likely to beat the Giants in a one game setting, but obviously you also have to play the other team if you win that game. So yeah, it's gonna listen. You, it, it's not about what that team's record is—100 wins or 80 wins or whatever. It's Who's playing well and how are you playing and who the pitchers are on that day? And obviously, if it's Max Scherzer, I think we all have our concerns. <laughs> on the other side of that, it's hard to find a team that's playing better than the Cardinals these days. Right. Exactly right. They are the hottest team in baseball, and it's not close. Thanks, Kevin. See you, buddy. <laughs>